is the song Kashyyyk Beach Party. It is from the band The Hattori Hanzo Surf Experience. It's from their album Meanwhile in Mallorca. And we've played them before here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. That'd be Monster Kid Radio. We've played them here before because they have somehow, in my head, created this song that is basically the unofficial theme song for the Monster Rally Retro Awards. It's the rallies here on Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. What are the rallies? What are the Monster Rally Retro Awards? Well, once a year, we honor the best in genre cinema, best actor, actress, director, movie, and monster. And we do this every year, working our way through the years of classic monster movie, Dumb. Every year we do one year of a particular decade so the first time we did this was 1931 41 and 51 and so on we are now up to 1936 46 and 56 and as is tradition around here just as much as this song is the unofficial theme song of the rallies my unofficial i guess kind of official guest every time we do the rally awards here on the show is author stephen d sullivan We're going to hear from him here in a little bit. You're going to hear a promo about his current book, which you really need to pick up. Monster Kid Radio approves. We'll get all that here in a little bit. Now, before we get to the rally awards, and what we're doing this time around is we're reading the ballot. We're going over this year's nominees. So you can start thinking about who you want to vote for when it comes time to vote. But before all of that, we've got listener feedback. We've got a report from Dr. Tongue. We've got a beta capsule review from Mark Matsky. And, of course, Kenny has his world-famous look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We've got a lot to go over. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I do have a little bit of business to go over real quick just to kind of let everybody know what's happening this weekend in the Monster Kid Movie Club, which we start at 11 a.m. Pacific on Saturday over at monsterkidmovie.club or just look up Monster Kid Radio over at Twitch, twitch.tv or wherever you watch your Twitch, if there's an app or something. Just look up Monster Kid Radio and you're going to find us. We are showing four feature films, one short film, and who knows what else. I can tell you we're going to be showing The Ghost and the Guest, Le Diabolique, Ring of Terror, Encounter with the Unknown. I found a 20-minute interview with Rod Serling we're going to be showing right before interview, or excuse me, not interview, Encounter with the Unknown. And we're going to be showing that because Encounter with the Unknown is narrated by Rod Serling. So we're going to be doing that. We also have a short film called Frankenstein's Light that we're going to be doing this Saturday as well. So at 11 a.m. Pacific, the pre-show starts. So we have usually a documentary or something along those lines, and then around noon is when the movies start. Here's the best part about all of this. Watching movies is cool. Watching movies with your fellow movie fans is even cooler, and the coolest is talking about them while you're watching the movie. You see, this is the only time I'm going to encourage you to chat it up while a film is going because there is a live chat going the entire time. I'm there pretty much all day. A lot of Monster Kid radio personalities, people that you hear on the show on a regular or semi-regular basis, they are in the chat, and it's always a lot of fun. I'd really like to have you come by and join us. If you feel like you need some monster movies on your Saturday, that's where you need to go. Now, this typically runs till about 7 o'clock or so p.m., again, Pacific. So it's a big chunk. You don't have to come from the very beginning and stay to the end. You just want to dip in throughout the day or whatever. We have plenty of people who do that, too, and I'd love to see you in the chat room. If you do show up and you've never been there before, please feel free to introduce yourself. 
because I like making new friends online. It's kind of the only way I make new friends these days, considering the situation going on in the world at large. Now, the other thing that I want to mention, the following Saturday, October 10th, Monster Kid Movie Club is going to change up a little bit because we are joining forces with GaryCon, which is a small gaming convention that takes place in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. They're doing what they call their Autumn Revel. Now, normally this would be something they do in person, but again, what I just said about the situation in the world these days, they are not able to do that. So we're going virtual and I'm joining them to show movies on Saturday as part of their Autumn Revel event. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not showing monster movies. Of course, I'm going to be showing some stuff that I, as a monster kid, love. But I'm also going to be showing some other things that are a little bit different than what I would normally show during the stream. I'm still going to be there. There may even still be a prize drawing with stuff with character. It's going to be a lot of fun to be had, not just with you guys and gals, but people from Gary Con as well. There's not a lot of crossover between role-playing games and monster kidness, but there is some, and... Well, I'm <laughs> a part of that crossover because I like both. And uh, you know, Stephen E. Sullivan, who's going to be on the show here in a little bit, just recently celebrated uh, an anniversary with when he first started working for TSR, the gaming company started by Gary Gykax, who is the namesake of Gary Kahn. Uh, Gary Kahn's actually run by his son, Ernie Gygax. And if I had the ability to get there the next time around they do something in person, I'd love to drop in and just check it out. But... Yeah, anyway, this is probably the closest I'm going to get in a long time, and I'd love to have you join me there as well. Again, that's happening on October 10th. The following week, on October 17th, we're going Moon Lake on y'all. That's all I'm going to say right now. Stay tuned to Monster Kid Radio or the Monster Kid Radio Facebook group or page, because I'll make more announcements there about what's going to happen regarding Moon Lake and a few other things that we're cooking up for surprises for you guys and gals with filmmaker Ansel Farage. So that's all coming up. Now, of course, on Tuesday, starting around 3.30 p.m., again, Pacific, is the Monster Kid Astronomy Club. Same place, monsterkidmovie.club. We're going to be showing classic sci-fi material. Not really sure what we're going to be showing this upcoming Tuesday, but again, stay tuned to Monster Kid Radio on Facebook or Twitter and you'll be able to know what's coming up on Tuesday as well. I feel like there's a lot of other things I wanted to announce. Oh, yes, here's the other thing. So I don't think there are any more openings left now, but Victoria Price, friend of the show, wonderful human being, is working with her group Everwalk, which is an organization that is encouraging people to get up and walk. And those of you who follow me on Facebook know that I was doing a lot of walking, trying to get myself in better shape, that sort of thing, but... Yeah, I just ran into some stumbling blocks, you know, with my health, uh, something that happened with my foot, and then the fires in the Pacific Northwest where everything was trying to burn down and the air quality just went ugh, awful. I stopped walking. I'm going to be trying to walk again, and Victoria Price is doing this event that involves Vincent Price telling us horror stories or haunted house stories or something. I'm not really sure of all the details. But the reason I bring it up here is that if you are participating in this program or, heck, if you use the Walker Tracker app through Everwalk, feel free to send me a friend request over there. They, they have the ability to add friends. I don't know what you can do with your friends on it, but feel free to look me up. It's just Monster Kid Radio, all one word, no spaces. If it matters, MKR are capitalized, but I don't think it does. 
Okay, so that's all that's going on this time uh, for now. Let's go ahead and get into the rest of the show. I apologize for feeling a little stumbly over some of my words. Um, it is um, 3.52 a.m. on Thursday, October 1st, as I'm recording this. I uh, got to get this out, and the best way to get it out is to uh, get on with the rest of the show. So here we go. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, it's time for Dr. Tongue's 3D House of Vintage Monster Collectibles! Well, hello again, MK Art Faithful, and welcome back to Yesteryear. This is where I take a look at all the fun stuff we used to have as kids way back when, and now we hunt it down religiously to get it back into our lives. Ah, you smell that? Memories. This time around, in honor of Scoob Timber, I'm taking a look at that great little cartoon that premiered back in September of 1969. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? originally only lasted for two seasons, fading out in October of 1970, but you could say that it has never really left us. It is more popular today than when it was originally released back in the 60s. I mean, there seems to be a new movie released every other month. Am I right, kids? Oh, and take my advice, if you haven't caught the tribute episode to the gang that Supernatural did, get thee to Netflix immediately. The premise, for those of you who recently arrived from off-world, is a simple one. Four happy-go-lucky teenagers, and yes, they've stayed teenagers for over 50 years now, travel around in a fixed-up van, the Mystery Machine, with their talking dog, Ruh-Roh, solving mysteries that appear to involve supernatural overtones. Witches, ghosts, goblins, cryptozoological critters, they were all there and foiled by these meddling kids and one hungry Great Dane. In initial drafts, the four were a musical group traveling around the country putting on shows. That was scrapped early on, but the mystery solvers trope stuck. Some original titles considered for the series were Who's Scared and Mysteries 5. Glad they picked the one they did because it spawned a cartoon theme song that gets stuck in your head even to this day. Come on, admit it. You're humming it right now, aren't you? You're welcome. I've been singing this since I was six. Nowadays, you can't throw a stick without hitting some form of merchandise for the Scooby-Doo shows and movies. Lunchboxes, action figures, die-cast cars, Lego sets for God's sake. Back in the day, merchandising was not the filthy animal that it has become today. I blame George Lucas for that massive change in consumerism, but that's a story for another day. There was a string of items originally released when the cartoon was on the air, but a majority of the items appeared right as the show went dark, which is normally what happens when a show isn't a hit right off, and then catches on, and then is cancelled. Some of the fun stuff that was released originally, now this is not a comprehensive list, so please don't shoot me, included a great metal lunchbox and thermos by Thermos, of course, a classic track board game from Milton Bradley, various different puzzles by Whitman, now back in the days of merchandising, figural items were not as popular as they are today. That is not to say that they didn't make any, they did, but it was usually just of Scooby. Sutton made a really cool vinyl figure of the dog, as well as other companies making plush figures. And of course, who could forget the old school Halloween costumes? Ben Cooper had one for the show as well. It was a Scooby mask with a vinyl suit with a pic of Shaggy and Scooby on it. 
Modern prices are all over the board on this stuff, but they have leveled off since the Hanna-Barbera madness that gripped a lot of collectors back in the 90s and early 2000s. That's it for this time. Have a scoobtastic rest of September as MKR prepares for the... 31 Days of Dracula? You've reached the feedback section of the show. We had one email come in. I'm going to feed it to the monster in the machine and have him read it to us, and then I'll respond. Here we go. Do your job, monster. I wanted to say thanks for your informative and expertly made podcast. Monster Kid Radio and the Bloody Pit were what recently inspired me to start two podcasts, even as the quality of Monster Kid Radio and the Bloody Pit were intimidating. One of mine is about B, films, and the other is about hobos as depicted in books and film. I was not a monster kid growing up except for Godzilla. I never could get enough of Godzilla. But your discussions have made me watch some things and ultimately love some things I previously ignored. I know you have a cutoff in the late 70s but I think it would be a mistake to not mention Minoru Kawasaki films and why you should consider them. His calamari wrestler and executive koala are as close to kaiju as one can get these days. I would also like it if you considered more anthology shows. Shudder just added a Dario Argento show from the 70s that would play well on your podcast. The movie I'd dance for joy for if you covered is Hal Hartley's No Such Thing from 2001. That is a fantastic art monster movie. Keep doing what you are doing though because you do it so well and I appreciate your work. From Dennis B. Dennis is a supporter of Monster Kid Radio through Patreon. Thank you, Dennis, for being a patron of Monster Kid Radio. And along those lines... I still need to do all of the September rewards for all the patrons who support Monster Kid Radio through Patreon.com. Monster Kid Radio, sit tight. By next week, by next week's episode, you'll have that taken care of. So please be patient. Give me just a little bit of like, be patient with me. Anyway, uh, Dennis wrote in, and you know what? That's really high praise. So put me right up there with the bloody pit. What Rod does over there is amazing. You know, I think I still need to do one more appearance over there. He and I still have two more William Castle Westerns to do. So, huh. I'll have to uh, get on Rod about that. And congratulations on getting a couple of shows up and running. They both sound fascinating uh within the next day or two i'll try to drop you a line i'll try to remember i mean like i said it's really early in the morning here uh but i'll try to remember to drop you a line because i'd love to check those podcasts out just to you know i like checking out new shows and they sound fascinating like i said so uh godzilla man i love me some godzilla and you know we talk about the cutoff you know the soft cutoff 1968 i'm kind of letting that go i'm loosening my grip on that one you know if a movie came out in the 70s but it's still monster kid relevant kind of in the wheelhouse it's good enough for me it's my show i make the rules anyway that said calamari wrestler and executive koala i have not seen i need to check them out it sounds like because if nothing else they've got some of the coolest titles i've seen for a kaiju film so i'll check those out and anthology shows i love me a good anthology show i'm trying to track down uh, some independent anthology movies that would be relevant to monster kids and what we're into uh, if anybody knows of any independently produced anthology movies that 
or whose filmmakers might be okay with me running the movie on the stream sometime this month, let me know. I'm always open to uh, suggestions there. Not really aware of a lot of Dario Argento. I just never really got into him. I know that he's considered one of the masters, uh, but I just never got into him. And where would you recommend I begin? And Hal Hartley's no such thing. I don't know anything about that either. Um, I, I recognize the name Hal Hartley. I probably, hmm, yeah, I just don't know. I don't know anything about him. Uh, but when I do a quick look, it looks like there is a, uh, a monster connection there. Of course, it takes place in, is that Iceland? Oh, somewhat inspired by Beowulf. Well, that sounds cool. I'll have to add that to the to watch list. That sounds neat. Thanks for writing in, man. And again, thank you for all of your support over the past several months. I think you've actually been a patron for over a year. Uh, just, I really appreciate it. it. means a lot, man. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Hello, this is Rod Barnett, the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast about eclectic film from across the decade. On The Bloody Pit, we've covered Godzilla movies, Doctor Who movies starring Peter Cushing, The Outer Limits, Fu Manchu, Doc Savage, old radio shows, my favorite movies of all time, a Lucio Fulci film or two, 1970s science fiction movies, and a long series on the films of Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti. So if you're curious to learn a little bit about some of the stranger areas of cult film and television, join me and my rotating group of co-hosts on The Bloody Pit. You might even learn something about Coffin Joe. And that's scary, people. Very scary. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. 
One of the series' most iconic monsters makes its debut in Ultra Q's fifth episode, Pegula Has Come, which aired January 30, 1966. At the urging of Dr. Ichinotani, June has joined an expedition to Antarctica, which is immediately plunged into peril at the appearance of a dark flying object. The thick smoke it trails causes an extreme plunge in temperature and heavy objects to become weightless. June literally runs into the ship's only female passenger, Yoko, herself a member of the expedition, and fiancé of missing scientist Nomura, and the two begin working together to address the mysteries of the South Pole. Captain Amida shares Nomura's journal with June, which contains an ominous entry, a reference to something called Pegula. The crew will soon learn what the biologist had named, and will have only one chance to escape from its icy clutches. Pegula Has Come is notable for many reasons, beginning with the special effects. The South Pole setting, realistic miniatures, and the Pegula costume, complete with glowing eyes, combine to create a haunting atmosphere, enhanced by the black and white cinematography. Pegula, a weird and giant hybrid of penguin and walrus, quickly became a fan favorite whose likeness was widely used in publicity material and merchandise. Amazingly, the monster still stomps today. Pegula was featured in the most recent Ultraman series, Ultraman Z, perhaps not coincidentally in its fifth episode. Pegula Has Come opens the door for solo excursions in Ultra Q, as Kenji Sahara's June Manjume is the only one of the three leads to appear on screen. Yuriko and Ipe apparently prefer a warmer climate. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. It's his night to howl. Dracula's dog, the meanest vampire of them all, has a four-legged friend and he's out for blood. Crown International Pictures presents Dracula's dog. Whoops, there he goes again. There's more to the legend than meets the throat in Dracula's Dog. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. A world-famous scientist, greatest living master of the occult, has mysteriously vanished. In his place, a huge and fearsome prehistoric monster suddenly appears. What happened to Dr. Waterman? Only one man, last to see him alive, knows. And now he finds himself in deadly peril. The weird, the unbelievable, the supernatural come alive before your very eyes in Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil, between light and the forces of darkness. What is the secret of the thousand-year-old book? See four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their lives, their sanity, their eternal souls in Equinox. In supernatural color. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. In honor of today's start of the Rally Awards season, I found the perfect article to cover. FM celebrated its 20th anniversary via issue 142 from April of 1978. Editor Forey Ackerman put together a year-by-year list of his favorite films starting with FM's first year, 1958. 
The article includes photos from the 20 chosen films with a short caption. Let's have fun with this Jeopardy style. I'll read the caption and you name the movie in your mind, in the form of a question, of course. Should be a breeze for us old timers. Newbies might struggle. Today we are going to see the first 10 films. We will conclude the list when the rally winners are announced. Let's start with 1958. A brimstoned end for Stoker's King of the Undead. The beginning of Christopher Lee's meteoric career as the immortal vampire. The question is, what is Horror of Dracula? Next up, 1959. Mr. Gimmick, the late William Castle, froze a nation's spine with icy fingers, and cowering customers declared Vincent's performance was worth the price of a mission. The question is, what is the Tingler? Let's move on to 1960. Adapted from John Wyndham's nerve-wracking novel, The Midwich Cuckoos, Earthborn alien children, led by Martin Stevens, posed a threat to the future of humanity. The question is, what is Village of the Damned? 1961 is up next. Even Lon Chaney Jr. couldn't save it originally when they muff Fritz Lieber's classic, Conjurer Wife, turning it into the insipid weird woman. But this was an inspired shocker of the supernatural. The question is, what is Burn Witch Burn? Here's a controversial pick from 1962. By the producer's orders, a deliberate ripoff of Harryhausen's Seventh Voyage, but a delight in its own right and an early opportunity for accomplished animator Jim Danforth to demonstrate his outstanding skills. The question is, what is Jack the Giant Killer? Horror wins over Harryhausen in 1963. If you haven't seen this one before, don't see it for the first time on TV alone. Superb ghost story in the genre of The Uninvited, The Beast with Five Fingers, and The Innocents. The question is, what is the haunting? My birth year, 1964. No wonder it was a winner. Produced and directed by George Powell, scripted by Charles Beaumont, makeup by William Tuttle, and special effects by Jim Danforth and Wah Chang. Tony Randall was terrific as Merlin, Medusa, Pan, the Yeti, etc., including the title character. The question is, what is the seven faces of Dr. Lau? Forey's favorite from 1965? Christopher Lee absolutely exuded the essence of evil and authority over all things Nick Turtle in his powerful portrayal of the Thirsty Count. The question is, what is Dracula, Prince of Darkness? We get our kicks from 1966. A technical marvel of inner space, microscopic mites in a miniaturized submarine, exploring the interior mysteries and menaces of the human body. Your editor thought so highly of the film that he treated 55 friends to a reserved seat showing. The question is, what is Fantastic Voyage? Last up, 1967. Another winner in the popular Quatermass series, a realistic, riveting science fiction film with scary aliens. The question is, what is 5 million years to Earth, also known as Quatermass and the Pit? So, did you agree or disagree with Forey? No Harryhausen, no Corman? I have my problems. It does give us a look at Forey's taste in the matter. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. 
We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Filmed in the woods of Northern California. Bigfoot. Filmed in Bosburg, Washington. Bigfoot. Filmed in a beaver swamp. Authentic motion picture footage. Never before seen. Now, in the legend of Bigfoot. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the killer shrew the world's most savage mammal. You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece, The Killer Shrews. We don't have a set time of year that we do this. We just know that we do it once a year. And I'm talking about the Monster Rally Retro Awards here on Monster Kid Radio, affectionately known as The Rallies, where we honor the best in genre cinema of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And because it was Stephen D. Sullivan's bright idea to do the 30s, 40s, and 50s every year so that we're not committing to a program that runs 30 (laughs) years, he's the man that comes on to do the rallies with me. First, we announce the nominees, and then after a short period of voting, Steve and I will get back together and announce the winners, Stephen D. Sullivan, the man, the author, the monster kid. How you doing, man? Doing pretty good. You know, all pandemics considered. Cra- crazy week. Yeah. it's It's been a thing. <laughs> well, and, and Lovecraft Country just started, and that's really cool, since my son worked on the pilot, which translated as the first episode, and uh, it's H.P. Lovecraft's birthday tomorrow, as we record this. Oh, yeah. It is. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> so I always try to read one of his stories on his birthday. Just don't read that unfortunately named poem. Yeah, no, don't read that. Don't read that one. I love Lovecraft's work. I don't love his xenophobia and racism. That's a whole different conversation that I probably shouldn't even open the door on. Um, yeah, we're just going to put that back up on the shelf. Lovecraft Country's out. Yeah. Good job. And the, okay. Anyway. The first episode was really good, and I'm sad my son didn't get to work on the rest of them, but they moved the production from Chicago to Atlanta. Well, and, and I have a few nitpicks here and there about the show, but I'm sure they have absolutely nothing to do with your son. Nope. So. Uh, <laughs> he was very disappointed, by the way, when the climactic scene in the first episode was not accompanied by the music thriller by Michael Jackson, which apparently it had been slated to in the original script. Oh, that, that, that would have made me even more disappointed because that was my biggest complaint. Modern music shouldn't have been uh-huh. in that episode. I'm sorry. I'm a stickler for that. If it's a period piece, no music that's not from the period. And I know American Horror Story does it. And I know there are other shows like Harlots on Hulu that does it. But no, uh-uh. <laughs> takes me right out of a period piece that's trying to be serious, that's trying to be a serious story. American Horror Story gets a little campy, so they get a pass. All right? Harlots, whatever. It's not my bag, whatever. But this was a serious piece, and to have the guy walking through whatever part of town he was walking through with the hip-hop playing in the background, uh-uh, no, doesn't fit, <laughs> not, no. HBO, you paid, no. <laughs> it's like having somebody playing electric guitar on the score for Cole the Conqueror. It doesn't work, it doesn't, man, this is my soapbox, let me get <laughs> off here. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's it's yeah. Yeah, I um, noticed it, anyway, but it didn't bother me. And, and I thought uh, overall, oh, it, it wasn't a print. Mm, no, <laughs> <laughs> overall, it's a great production, and I I think people really enjoy it. I'm looking forward to the rest of it. That's what I was going to say. Oh, I am too. I just hope the soundtrack album doesn't become such a thing that that. <laughs> I get it. I get it. For the most part, for the mainstream, the only collectible that you can really sell to non-nerd, non-geek audiences is a CD soundtrack, or in this case, nowadays, a digital soundtrack album. And for that reason, you have to have modern music. I get that. I understand the business behind it. But come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) It just doesn't fit. It's not appropriate. Besides, music is such a big part of this particular episode. There is a, a musical number. There's a couple. Why didn't you just play some music, some period appropriate music? Just didn't. It'd probably be cheaper to license that anyway. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> and it would have made more sense <laughs> if that was your biggest quibble. Uh, I think I think they're doing all right though. But it's a big quibble. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Hollywood's been doing that forever, though. They they really have. No, they haven't. <laughs> It's a relatively recent phenomenon (laughs) within the past 30 years or so. So did you not like Knight's Tale then? No, I did not. Oh, I thought Knight's Tale was And part of it was for that reason. Another part is because I felt like Heath Slater at that point had not come into his own as an actor and was not very good. But for the most part, I really was disappointed by that film too. (laughs) It's another reason why I don't like Laz Berman stuff. It's why I didn't like Moulin Rouge. Uh And I know Moulin Rouge is its own hyper-realistic thing, dreamlike, whatever. But still, it doesn't mm, match for me. Well, you get points for consistency anyway, I was going to ask you about. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, go the other way around, you know, have something that's set in the future and use modern music or whatever, you know, do like what Westworld does when they play like a version of Black Hole Sun, you know, through the stuff or whatever. That's fine. That works because that music exists in that world or at least did at one point. I mean, you're pushing it when you have the Beastie Boys sabotage in a Star Trek movie, but at least consistently it still works because that music did exist in that world. Although that opens up the whole possibility that the BC boys are really part of the Q continuum because they have a song that references <laughs> Spock and they wouldn't know what Spock was in, you know, anyway. <laughs> Boy, was that a can of worms I didn't expect. I don't know what's happening here. You know, <laughs> that's how, that's how my brain works. How are you, Steve? You still want to do this today? <laughs> yes. Are you cutting all that? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Well, this is an awards thing, and we're just going to consider that like the the part of the really bad monologue that fell flat at the beginning of the show. Um, <laughs> there we go. Wow. Okay. Um. What are we? We're talking about the rally awards. <laughs> this is the seventh year for this, I believe. Holy yes. cats! Did, did we do thirty? Six or seven? Did we do thirty? Maybe we started at thirty-one. I, don't think I don't we remember. started at thirty-one because of Dracula and Frankenstein. I think you're probably right. So that makes this the sixth year. <laughs> Get your math right, Derek. It is the sixth year of the Rally Awards. We've been doing this every year. And as I said at the beginning of this, first we did 1931, 41, 51, and so on. Now, once we get through them all, yeah. we're going to start talking about silence serials in the 60s. You like the consonants there? The, oh, the, I was going to ask. I did that on pretty. I was wondering last night when my wife said, What does the rallies mean? What's it for? <laughs> It was like the Monster Rally Retro Awards, of course, on it's part of the name. She's like, oh, okay. So, and I was wondering, okay, are we going to go do 40, 50, and 60? 
I'm not sure how we're going to tackle that yet. It's, it's we've a got couple a of years away. So. Yeah. And like I said, we'll do silent 60s and serials at some point, too, cool. because there are a handful or a number of serials that could easily fit into this. Oh, yeah this thing in fact every year when i'm trying to put the ballot together it's always difficult because i've I've established at the beginning we're not doing serials but there's flash gordon there's all this great stuff that you can pull from and plug in here especially when we are so desperate to have nominees like we did a few years ago in that particular year in the 50s where it was just dry yeah i think that was 52 right it was just awful it was it was awful I mean, I put the ballot together every year. I do it slightly differently with the people that I reach out to, to try to help compile the ballot this year. I stuck primarily with the monster conservancy. So people like you and rich and Jeff and Chris and Josh and Mitch, is that everybody? I think so. I think that's everybody. Yeah. So the entire monster conservancy, which you can find out more about at SaveMonsters.com, I reached out to, to you guys and, through that, I put the ballot together. There is one category that only has four nominees as opposed to five, and that's because we just could not come up with a fifth. It's unfortunate that it's an actress category, but uh, you know what? I did what I could. There's always a write-in possibility as well. Right. Right. And there may be something we've overlooked somehow. You know, that that's happened exactly. in the past. I think, you know, was it one year we snubbed, was it Tarantula? <laughs> We snubbed from one of the categories, which we were really up in arms about. But hey, write it in. Right. You know, that, that's, that's right. That's available. Yeah. That is there. I will, in a later recording, let people know where they can find the ballot themselves and when they have to have their vote in so that I don't have to figure that part out right now live on the air with Steve. And so pay attention or keep your ears open, eyes open, whatever. It's coming. Um, <laughs> coming soon. I got all disheveled and just uh, I'm rattled now about the music thing. <laughs> all right. Anyway, Tarantino does it too. Okay, you know what? Never mind. Yeah, he does. <laughs> At least you're consistent. At least you're consistently rattled. But most importantly, right now, <laughs> I'm gonna have a cup of coffee. Go ahead, Steve. What, what we're talking <laughs> what we about is. The Monster Rally Retro Awards for 36, 46, 56. Not what the future holds, not what the past holds. Now it's like, who's in front of us now? Who do we get to look at? Who do we get to vote for? And what did they do that is worth consideration for this? In the past, I think I've introduced the category and then you've gone through the nominees. Uh, does that work for you or do you want to yeah, change sure. it? Yeah, sure. Let's do it around? that way. Okay. Good, because there's a French name or two in here that I'm going to rely on you to pronounce correctly <laughs> because I do not speak French outside of. <laughs> All right. So we are looking at 1936. There are five categories in every year. The first category is Best Actor, and we have five nominees. Steve, take it away. The five nominees for Best Actor in 1936 are Lionel Atwill in The Devil Doll, Boris Karloff, the man who lived, also known as the man who changed his mind. Otto Kruger, Dracula's daughter. Bela Lugosi for The Invisible Ray. And Todd Slaughter, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Initial thoughts and any, any uh, comments here regarding this particular category? Well, when I researched this particular year, I think Karloff had like three different really good roles. He really did. That he was up for this year. I think I probably recommended uh, The Walking Dead, which I think is an amazingly creepy role for him. But The Man Who Lived, or The Man Who Changed His Mind, turned out to be a Karloff film that I had not seen. I thought I had, but I had not seen it until very recently. And it's, like most of them, it's a beauty. So I love Karloff's role. 
he could have been up for the Invisible Ray, which Bela is up for too. Bela and Karloff in the Invisible Ray, it's one of their better pairings. I mean, we you know, we know we've got the classic ones, the Raven, the Black Cat. This is a really good one too. And honestly, I did not remember Todd Slaughter very much until we watched one of his films on the uh, the stream, the Monster Kid Movie Club. MonsterKidMovie.club stream. Yeah, we just watched one of those movies as of this recording. Uh, we watched one of his films. And and I was like, I, you know, I, I've forgotten yeah. about this guy. You know, I know I'd known him, but I've forgotten about him. And I'm not sure if I've seen him as the demon barber in Fleet Street. You know, to go back to the Karloff thing, uh, the man who lived, the man who changed his mind was also something that I showed at the Monster Kid Movie Club not too long ago. And it was something that blew a lot of our minds in, yeah. in terms of a Karloff film that we hadn't seen, not as well seen, but very well performed and produced. And, you know, I think if you haven't seen it, highly recommended. Todd Slaughter is one of those guys that... I feel like should be mentioned at least peripherally in the same conversation as like Lugosi and Karloff and them, but just doesn't get the same attention. And I don't know why that is because every time I see him, he's delightful. He's a little more of a kind of a, a Laird Krigar yeah. figure in some ways, but he's a little more over the top than Laird was. I, yeah. I love Laird. Laird was a really, really kind of very serious actor and really did amazing kind of, acting work todd slaughter is a little more over the top <laughs> very but he's a similar kind of playing a similar kind of ghoulish uh delightfully evil character sometimes i mean the movie we just watched with him on the stream i think somebody said in the chat room if he doesn't start curling his mustache here in a minute i'm gonna be really disappointed and when you know it he's playing with his mustache <laughs> the entire time so right, yeah. yeah i mean he's just and come on his last name's slaughter what a wonderful right. horror movie actor. Name. Well, and Todd is German for death, too. So we've got Todd Slaughter, right? <laughs> uh, you mentioned Lugosi earlier. Uh, what did you think of him in The Invisible Ray? What do you think about that one? I really like him in The Invisible Ray, and I really like that movie overall. I think it's really kind of an interesting mix of, of sci-fi horror. And I would swear, though I've never found any proof of this, that the first time I saw it, it's a black and white film, mm -hmm. but uh, Boris becomes radioactive and has a radioactive death touch. And I would swear that the first time I saw it, which was in a theater in a revival house, that the glow around Boris was actually green, <laughs> that they had hand tinted or whatever they did it, and it was green. I have found no evidence of that. It was on a science fiction marathon, <laughs> in probably 3 a.m. or something like that. So I'd been watching movies literally for 24 hours. So I could be mistaken, but I would swear. Anyway, I think Bela and Boris really are terrific with each other in this. And it's one of those mm -hmm. where neither one is kind of entirely the good guy or entirely the bad guy, although Bela ends up definitely kind of looking more the good guy, which is always unusual in these films. So I like him a lot in this category. And we haven't even mentioned Lionel Atwell, really, in drag some of the time in The Devil Doll, which is kind of an amazing, weird, creepy film. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. It was inspired by a book that sounds like the title of another book that ends up being hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> it's inspired by Burn Witch Burn? Yes. Which is not the same as The Conjure Wife, the Fritz Leiber story, which then was adapted as Burn Witch Burn later, right? Correct. If I got that right? Correct. Also adapted as a weird woman at one point before that. But anyway, yeah. So for those of you wanting to be really confused, look up 
the title stuff for the devil doll, but the devil doll is about a mad scientist who shrinks people. So there you go. Nothing to do with weird women at all, but Lionel Atwell, he's playing himself and then he's playing himself dressed up as a woman to avoid the police and stuff. And it's, he's really good. He's always good. Right. So we've got, those guys that we've mentioned and then Otto Kruger. Otto Kruger is the guy that Van Helsing calls for help because Van Helsing gets arrested for murder because they find him having staked somebody. (laughs) Dracula in the previous film. So he calls one of his students for assistance to try to uh, prove that he's not crazy, that you know, he really does know what he's talking about, that sort of thing. He plays Dr. Garth in the film and there's just something delightful about Garth and uh, his assistant secretary person, Janet, who we're going to talk about here in a second in the film as well. Janet is kidnapped by Dracula's daughter and they're trying, you know, she's going to turn her, but she doesn't want to turn her. because she's just a cur- It's a great film. If you haven't seen Dracula's daughter, Dracula's yet, daughter is really, you really, really good. need to. It's completely underrated and really has some cool stuff under the surface. All right, so that is for Best Actor. I already kind of alluded to somebody that's going to be in the Best Actress category, Marguerite Churchill, who plays the secretary, Janet, and Dracula's daughter. Who else is in that category with her, Steve? Gloria Holden, Dracula's daughter and Dracula's daughter, or the character that that is the titular character, even though I think they call her something else. Uh, Marina Sullivan Mm -hmm. from The Devil Doll. You may remember her from her roles in Tarzan films. And Dorothy Stone from Revolt of the Zombies. So we've only got four there. Right. And we, you talked a little bit about Marguerite. And I don't think we could say enough about Gloria Holden. She is magnificent. <laughs> totally worth seeing. If you haven't seen this, this is definitely one of the ones that needs to go on your list to watch before you vote, for sure. And then Marina Sullivan, she's one of the supporting players that works in the doll shop, I think, in... The Devil Doll. It's been a while since I've seen that. So Marina so, Sullivan plays the uh, daughter of the original scientist in The Devil Doll. That, right, right, yeah. right. That's it. Yes. Yes. She's actually the daughter of the Lionel Atwell character who believes that he is dead, I think, mm-hmm. and perished on Devil's Island because he's he escaped from Devil's Island. And, and she's a wonderful actress and no relation to me at all that I know of. Uh, despite the Sullivan thing. <laughs> well, thanks for pointing that out. Well, you never know. I mean, when I was a kid, people would constantly ask me if I was related to Ed Sullivan, like all of us Sullivans had to be related to Ed. And while I wouldn't have minded having an uncle who brought the Beatles to America, no, not not the same family. Sorry. Anyway, she's, she's pretty wonderful. And then we have Dorothy Stone for The Revolt of the Zombies, which is a, a Halpern film that's the follow-up to White Zombies, sort of, kind of, yeah, but not really. I mean, it... it- it has some very tenuous connections to White Zombie, same director, and I believe they even show some close-ups of Bela's eyes. Yes. It's set in, in Cambodia, which is not kind of what you're probably expecting. Wait, yep. Dorothy's in it. Tell us about who she's who she's playing. So she's the daughter of the general that's investigating, kind of seeing what's going on here. Uh, Revolt of the Zombies. It's an interesting movie. Uh, it's an early zombie film. It does deserve a little bit more attention i feel like uh she is pretty much the only real female character in here that has a lot to do in otherwise isn't just kind of set dressing right you know here here's the beautiful daughter of the raja or whatever yeah right now so. she is the daughter of the not the i said the general earlier didn't i, I didn't mean to say that she is engaged to armand in the film you know what 
just watch the movie. Let's leave it there. Let's just let's just watch the movie. It's just, it's, it's, see, I'm trying to dance around it without really overhyping the movie because it doesn't turn up on the ballot very much. But there are some really interesting things that happen in Revolt of the Zombies. You see some close-up gunshot effects, which completely out of the blue and in, in rare for a 1930s film. Right. It's an interesting film. Yeah, for me, it's an important stepping stone in the evolution of zombie cinema. There you go. That's the category. There's only four nominees here. If there's a fifth that we've missed, listeners, write it in, please. And feel free to yep. start your own write-in campaign on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Right. And and on any of these, yeah. any of the categories, if you don't like what we've come up with, go in there and, and lobby for what you love. Next category. Best Director. And Best Director, we have William Cameron Menzies for Things to Come. We have Lambert Hillier for Dracula's Daughter. We have Michael Curtiz, the great Michael Curtiz for The Walking Dead. We have Todd Browning, the great Todd Browning for The Devil Doll. And we have Robert Stevenson, no relation, for The Man Who Lived, a.k.a. The Man Who Changed His Mind. Some nice directing. The first thing that I want to comment on, Todd Browning, he's completely uncredited in The Devil Doll, and I'm not entirely sure why. Is that true? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. In some ways, it's not a lot like Todd Browning's other films. It's not as weird and twisted as his stuff tends to be, aside from that it has a man dressed as a woman and people shrunk to doll size, which, come to think of it, you know, Lon Chaney Sr. dressing up as a woman and that kind of stuff, that was something Todd Browning did. So it's, it, I guess in some ways it is in his wheelhouse, but it's also not nearly as strange as a lot of his films, at least for me. Right. And, and it's definitely worth a watch, and it's you know, and it's a classic. We've also got William Cameron Menzies for Things to Come, which is another thing that we just recently watched on the uh, Monster Kid Movie Club, the Astronomy Club. It was a sci-fi thing, right? <laughs> yep, but it's still if you go Monster right. Kid Movie dot, dot club. club, that's where you're going to find it. Correct. That's a brilliant film. It just is from kind of end to end. It's H.G. Wells' response to Metropolis, as we found out during our discussions. Mm -hmm. And it uh, looks at three different time periods in the man going from when it was made in 1936 up into the 1960s, where Wells believes that we'll still be fighting World War II, even though you know World War II hadn't happened when he started writing and uh, creating this film. And then into the future of, is it, 2016, 2026, something like that. It's like now <laughs> is is when it ends up. And the special effects are amazing, and it's got some great actors, great sets, great costumes. It's a very well put together film. Michael Curtiz. Well, let's do Lambert Hillier for Dracula's Daughter because I really don't know a lot about him except that he did Dracula's Daughter. But you know, maybe that's enough. You know, Dracula's Daughter is a really good movie, and mm -hmm. uh, maybe you've got some other stuff about him. I didn't have time to look him up today. Uh, this so, one was a screenwriter, director, and uh, he'd been working since The Silence. And I, I don't know that there was there anything else in his resume that you know of that people go, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Off the top maybe of my not. head, no, but I'm sure no, as soon as exactly. we've been recording. So, but I'll, Dracula's Daughter yeah. is worthy enough to be that he belongs on this oh, list. he did The Invisible Ray. What are we, oh, what there are we you thinking? Go. Okay. Yeah, he did Invisible Ray as well. Okay, so we got two. We got two in the same year, I guess, mm -hmm. huh? Interesting. Dracula's Daughter is a really good film. So uh, I was saving Michael Curtiz, and I know there's there's one more after Michael Curtiz. Robert Stevenson. Yeah, so let's do Robert Stevenson first. <laughs> Who, you know, because of our association with uh, Disney Indiana, Scott and Tracy Morris, he's a Disney guy. 
Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, that darn cat. Which I'd totally forgotten until you brought it up. Blackbeard's Ghost, which at some point we're going to do Blackbeard's Ghost either as a standalone episode over here with Scott and Tracy or as some sort of crossover with Monster Kid Radio because I love that movie. But yeah, he did a lot of Disney stuff later in his career. Now, he didn't start with Disney. He'd been working since the 30s as well. But he eventually found his way to doing a lot of the live action Disney stuff. And he did this really interesting and I would say almost lost Boris Karloff film as well, because this is, Mm -hmm. this is a film that was done in England, as I recall, right? Correct. So seeing it over here is really, it's been tricky and I had a hell of a time finding a DVD version of it that wasn't crazy expensive, but I thought it was totally worth it. Uh, It's a very good film. Michael Curtiz. Who is this guy? I've never heard of him before. <laughs> I don't know. Some hack. That, Some you know, got hack. Lucky. I don't know. He, he did something about, it was a movie about North Africa or something. It was a town in North Africa. What is it? Uh, Casa Verde, Casa something. Oh, Casa Blanca. I've never heard of him. Casa Verde. Yes, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the sequel. That's, that's, it means uh, White House, right? Casablanca. <laughs> so I don't know what this film is, but apparently this Curtiz guy did it. <laughs> Uh, Michael Curtiz uh, is one of yeah. the all-time great directors, period. <laughs> he does, he is yeah. an amazing body of work, uh, and it's just astonishing the kind of stuff he did. And he ended doing this, The Walking Dead, which, as I said earlier, is one of my favorite weird Karloff films once you get past the classic monsters. It's just uh, an amazing, interesting film about a guy who's, who's uh, wrongly executed. And that guy would be Boris Karloff. And yeah, it's cool. It's very cool. And it's great. Very cool. He's got some genre stuff in his background. He did the uh, the first wax, House of Wax style right. movie with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Uh, he did Dr. X, yep. working with some, some incredible people there. Did a movie called The Mad Genius, which I don't know a lot about. But I know that John Barrymore's in it, and Karloff has a teeny tiny role in it as well, something that I do need to see. Yeah, uh, but then eventually he would go on to do things like The Seahawk and The Sea Wolf, just some really cool movies. And then Casablanca, like you said, and all over the place. I mean, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah, across the Pacific. He was yeah. a workhorse and a brilliant director. Brilliant director. And until fairly recently, he was one of these guys that, that people didn't talk about a lot. As oh yeah, brilliant directors. People say oh yeah, Hitchcock and John Ford and John Huston. And suddenly, I don't know, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, people started saying Michael Curtiz. Look at all this right. stuff he did. Look how good it all is. Yeah. How the heck didn't we notice this guy for the last fifty years? Anyway, he's a great director. So that's why I saved him for last there because we could probably talk about his films. Oh, for another three <laughs> shows, even though. Very few of them are actually genre. So that takes us away from the directors and into... The best movie category. And in the best movie, we have The Devil Doll. We have Dracula's Daughter. We have The Invisible Ray. We have The Man Who Changed His Mind or The Man Who Lived Again. And H.G. Wells' Things to Come. So we've talked about all these movies already a little bit, but wow, they're all over the place. First of all, you've got the, the universal monster thing going with Dracula's Daughter, a little bit of Invisible Ray. You've got the far future sci-fi stylings of things to come. You're all over the map here, and they're all great. We have two Karloff films. Yeah. We have a Lionel Barrymore shrinking people down into, t- <laughs> into tiny dolls. All of these films are must-see in my book. And... 
it's a shame that the man who changed his mind, the man who lived again, is so seldom seen that, you know, Boris Karloff did a lot of these kind of mad scientist-y movies. And for me, I love them all, but they do start to blend together in my mind. And I thought I'd seen this one, and I hadn't. So if you can see that one, see it for sure. But all these others should be much easier to see. I can't tell you which one I'm going to vote for. Because I really like all of them quite a lot, and I two of them are just uh, are real, you know, certifiable gold medal classics. It's gonna be tough. Dracula's Daughter it's... and Things to Come, I think, are just you gotta have seen these for a variety of reasons. Yeah. All right, that leaves us one more category uh, for 1936. The the one that a lot of times is the reason we come to these movies to begin with. Best monster. We have Countess Zaleska, Dracula's daughter. That would be Dracula's daughter. Mm-hmm. We have Dr. Rook from The Invisible Ray. That is uh, Karloff's character. We have the zombies from Revolt of the Zombies. Neither fast nor slow zombies, nor Haitian zombies. So kind of weird, but that's where we are. And we have the doll people from The Devil Doll. And we have Sandor, the eerie servant from Dracula's Daughter. And I think we touched on all of those briefly. We did. Cool. Right on. All right. So that is 1936. Let's pop over to 1946 at this point. And, oh boy. This one, like you said earlier, kind of a transition between the classic traditional universal horror stylings to getting closer and closer to more sci-fi atomic age stuff. I mean, it's not quite there yet, but right. it's getting there. In some sense, the uh, World War II yeah. really seemed to put the kibosh on monster movies in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So we've got stuff that's not really quite monster movies anymore, but it's kind of, uh, you know, trending more a little toward the old dark house kind of creeper stuff. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of really classic monsters. So it's, it's kind of a tricky and transition year. And we may have less to say about some of these categories, I think because of that. That's right. We are in the best actor category once again, and we have, I think in every category we have five nominees, so we should be looking good there. Steve, what do we got? We have John Carradine for the face of marble, which I believe is a mad doctorish type. Mm -hmm. We have Martin Kozlek and The House of Horrors. We have Peter Lorre as the madman in The Beast with Five Fingers. We have Jean Marais, La Belle et la Bête, Beauty and the Beast, as The Beast. We have Claude Rains as the devil, or one of his henchmen, in Angel on My Shoulder. Face of Marble is one of these ones I know I've seen. I have trouble keeping in my mind. Do you have anything much to say about that? It's a mad scientist movie. Carradine's the best part of it. Uh, the movie itself is directed by William Bodine. So well, there there's you go. that. But it's also a movie that has uh, mad scientist, voodoo, ghost, kind of sort of zombies. There's somebody that walks. There's a thing that walks through walls, or I think it's a dog, actually, that walks through walls. It's got a lot of really cool stuff in it. Yeah, I need to rewatch it. It's just Me definitely too. on my rewatch list before we do any voting. Martin Koslick is uh, he's so good at this kind of I'm almost sympathetic but I'm creepy guy. 
yes. that he's managed to do that in a number of movies. And this is one of them. House of Horrors is one of the Creeper movies or The Brute Man or just Rondo Hatton, if you prefer, uh, where Universal decided that acromegaly made him look so strange that he could be a monster without makeup. Right. Anyway, Martin Kozlek is the sculptor who's kind of the mad sculptor. Peter Lorre, uh, is he being haunted by a disembodied hand or is it him or we don't know. And Spence keep you going. Lori is so good. Yeah. He really sells it. <laughs> he's so good in everything. I don't think I've, he's like Karloff. I, and, or Lugosi for that matter. I don't know that I've ever seen a bad Peter Lori performance. He was one of these people that was just, just on all the time, really had it nailed. You know, if he'd been incredibly handsome, he probably would have had an even more spectacular career. But as it was, I think he worked pretty much from when he came to Hollywood till the end of his life because he was that good. Uh, Jean Marais, I did not know anything more about this actor aside from he's in the Beauty and the Beast, La Belle La Peta. And I need to rewatch that because I haven't seen it in a long time, but it is a beautiful and spectacular film and the makeup is great. Claude Rains, I had forgotten about this until you put it on the list. And I looked it up and I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that that film. That's about the gangster who's killed and looks like a judge and is sent back to Earth by the devil right. in order to impersonate the judge and kind of has a I think he falls in love and has conflicts and stuff. It's it is totally not what I expected it was no. going to be at all. Okay, so the original title of that film was Me and Satan. And obviously the producer thought that uh, maybe calling a movie something Satan is not going to sell in 1946. So let's change the <laughs> title. Uh, and they want the completely other way out. Me and Satan is actually a much I more agree. appropriate title for uh, the, but let's, for let's the movie. let's completely go the other way. Let's swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and go, Angel, on my shoulder. Well, okay. Uh, Cloud Reigns does play a character named Nick, who turns out to be the devil who makes a deal with the guy who's killed and go back and all that. And, you know, it's a lighthearted movie. Sort of. But it's got some stuff under the surface. It's kind of like dark. It's a lighthearted movie about a dark subject and kind of yeah. has a an odd... Uh, twist isn't quite the right word. It, it doesn't end where I thought it was going to end. It doesn't go where I expected it to go. And that's actually a good thing. I like movies that surprise me. Uh, right. Claude Rains is Claude Rains. I mean, how can you not enjoy Claude Rains as basically the devil? I mean, it's not fire and brimstone or whatever. It's it's Claude Rains, but right. It's not, come on. you know, twirling his mustache, Vincent Price devil kind of thing. It's Claude Rains. And you can, Totally mm -hmm. believe he's the devil. And I believe this movie's in the public domain, and I'm considering showing it on a stream someday in the future, potentially. It's like, it's not normally the kind of thing I show, but it's public domain. It's Claude Rains. I think people might enjoy it. Yeah, and it's it's cool. It's kind of a cross between, it's a little bit comedy, it's a little bit gangster, it's a little bit film noir. Right. And it's got the devil in it, which is... So why not? <laughs> Anyway, that's the last of our best actors. There's always the chance that you can add another person in. Obviously, yeah. Because there's always a chance we've overlooked someone. Next category. Best actress. Josette Day from La Belle et la Beta, Beauty and the Beast. She is Beauty. Virginia Gray from The House of Horrors. Rosemary Laplanche from Strangler of the Swamp. June Lockhart. Yes, that June Lockhart lost in space. She-Wolf of London, possibly the titular character. And we have Dorothy McGuire from The Spiral Staircase. 
And this is a category where we've got a lot of good actresses in it and a lot of things that I'm not really, really familiar with. Okay. Well, as far as Beauty and the Beast yeah. goes. No, it's like I know all these people. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of know their work. Mm-hmm. I know Virginia Gray and June Lockhart. I know really well. And as I was looking this up, as I said earlier, I need to rewatch Beauty and the Beast because it's been I, it's been at least a decade and maybe more since I've seen it, even though it's a classic fantasy film and it's really, really good because it is French and it is subtitled. If I'm watching movies late at night, usually it won't slap in something that has subtitles because I'm tired. My eyes don't want to read subtitles. I want to just be able to listen and watch. So I need to rewatch that. But she's terrific. In it. I've never seen Beauty and the Beast, so I have nothing to offer there. It's one of those movies that's on the list of things that I need to see and I keep meaning to see. And I've seen pictures and stills and it looks amazing. I just haven't watched it yet. So I have nothing to offer here. And then we've got Virginia Gray in the House of Horrors. And she's the, love, the quote unquote love interest. Correct. For Martin Kozlak in House of Horrors. Correct. Which means she ends up in a kind of a weird situation where she's the female side of the Kozlak creeper. Virginia Gray triangle, right? So the object of love of mad, the mad sculptor and his monstrous model, Rondo Hatton. Yep. Uh, and she's good. Mm-hmm. And she's good. It's not a, not a, you know, you're not a huge role. And that's obviously a problem with monster kid movies. A lot of time from periods like this is that sometimes women don't get the best roles, but Here we go. We still managed to get five in this category. I'm going to say Rosemary LaPlanche, and then you're going to tell me about Strangler of the Swamps, because this is one of those films that, if I've seen it, I don't remember it, and so it went right on my rewatch list this morning. So I just watched this last night, and I fell in love with it. I am a huge fan of this film. I think it looks really good. I've got it on Blu-ray, and... Wow. That, yeah, it's it's just great. Uh, Rosemary LaPlanche plays the daughter of a recently deceased ferryman in a swamp. Uh, there's a town that has a swamp in it or nearby it, and there's a fairy person that ferries people oh, back and forth. Oh, I have seen this. Yeah, and so she plays <laughs> the daughter of the deceased ferryman. She takes over the job as the ferryman or fairy person, and she starts out kind of oh, I'm here because this is what my dad would have done. And it's my own thing now. And this is what I got, you know, just kind of a very flat one note character. But then she falls in love and becomes more active. And at the end of the movie, she's really kind of driving everything that's going on. And I love the journey that she takes in the film. And I really enjoy her performance and presence. Is there some voodoo in this film too, Derek? Not quite. Okay. There is a supernatural element, but no, it's not voodoo. Okay. All right. June Lockhart, She-Wolf of London. I don't know how much we want to spoil She-Wolf of London, but she is the suspected She-Wolf of London, which is kind of an Eros character. And June plays tortured pretty well. You know, she's given some interesting acting to do. And it's it's a really well-made movie. And I don't know how much further I want to go with that because we don't want to. Don't want to spoil it, or do we, because it's so old? No, you know what? I will say this. This is the kind of monster movie that Steve loves. (laughs) Oh, yes. The kind of movie that I really (laughs) love with all my heart. Yes. Long-time listeners will know. (laughs) People who know Steve (laughs) will know what I'm getting at. Next, the the final actress is Dorothy McGuire from The Spiral Staircase. I have not seen The Spiral Staircase. I know nothing about it other than it came in from multiple people when I asked for nomination suggestions. And I trust the Conservancy. So, you know what? She's going to end up on the ballot. 
The Spiral Staircase is a film that I have literally had sitting next to my TV and DVD player for at least six months, if not a year. I always confuse it with Turn of the Screw, <laughs> okay, <laughs> which means I know nothing about it. But it, it's on at the top of my two-watch list, and since I know exactly where it is, and it's right next to the TV and the DVD player, I will be playing it very, very soon. Sounds Sorry, good. guys. No, hey. We're going to trust our friends. Yep. They know what they're talking about. Exactly. All right. Next category, Best Director. We've talked about most of these movies already, or at least the, the movies that were, yeah, you know what I mean. Who do we got? <laughs> we have Jean Cocteau from La Belle et la Bête. Beauty and the Beast. We have Robert Flory, the Beast with Five Fingers, the Peter Lorre vehicle, which is creepy and and eerie and you know it's Peter Lorre. He's being haunted by a disembodied hand. What more do you need? We have Philip Ford from Valley of the Zombies. Robert Siadmak from The Spiral Staircase, and that enough should be me having seen it, but it's not yet. So there you go. And then we have, uh, I'm not sure if it's Jean Yarborough or if he said Gene from She-Wolf of London. I, I don't know I, either. Actually. I don't know. I, you know, it's just, I was looking at it. I was like, I've always said Gene Yarborough, but then we just has Jean Cocteau. And I was like, oh, maybe it's Jean. But Yarborough is kind of not a French name. So I don't know. I honestly don't know. Sorry, Jean, no. Jean, whichever one it is. She Wolf of London is a beautifully produced picture. I will say that. It's really nice. It kind of, it's on the Wolfman mm -hmm. set of Blu rays and uh, DVDs from Universal if you get the complete set. Uh, and Valley of the Zombies. You want to talk about that at all? So, Valley of the Zombies, again, another zombie movie pre Romero, which, you know what? I have, over the years, tried to distance myself from my zombie movie podcasting days, but I still love me a good pre-Romero zombie film. And Valley of the Zombies is one of those ones that has so many other things going on that they barely could have called it a zombie movie. It's got some near vampiric stuff going on because there's somebody stealing blood. There's a lot of film noir elements in here. It does a really interesting thing in that you get a jump scare with an animal, but it's not a cat, which is what you normally have when you have a, a jump scare with an animal. I'm not going to say what that animal is, but it's an interesting choice, but there's only one guy that really comes back from the dead. That's really the focus of the story here. And it's less about zombieism and more about right. raising somebody to do my bidding, you know, which I guess is a zombie thing, but it's, it's less about a, a zombie infestation or plague or, or a group of them like in white zombies or revolt of the zombies. I want to go on the record that I really enjoy pre Romero zombies. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I love them. You know, is it part of me, you know, I know I'm old <laughs> relatively in old school, but part of me resents that what George Romero called ghouls has since then somehow become the only thing that people think of when they think of zombies. And I, I miss the, the zombies like the zombie in Cold Jack the Night Stalker, who was someone you had to put salt in his mouth and sew his lips shut to kill him rather than, you know, cut him to pieces right. or, or whatever before they ate your brains. It's funny that the the brains thing is also something that's coming. Not Romero. It's not, it's yeah. not Romero. It's, it's from Revenge mm -hmm. of the Living Dead. And now when Return to the Living Dead. I'm sorry, that's you're right. Return of the Living Dead. And now when people say zombies, they think, Oh yeah, they're they're dead people 
come after you and want to eat your brains. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what zombies were at all. <laughs> if you, and I don't know if this is still a thing because I'm a, a, away from the zombie subculture, sub subculture, but do they still do zombie walks? Is that still a thing? I don't know. Not sure. If it is, I, I knew, I know that when it was, and if it still is, I assume this is the case now. Although if you're doing a zombie walk now, don't because of COVID, but yeah, seriously. Um, it's not uncommon to hear people going brains during a zombie walk, even though that's really only a thing in five, if not six zombie movies ever. Right. And it didn't start until return of the living dead, which was what early eighties. Yeah. And I would probably, if anybody wants to point, boy, we are way off topic, but you know what? <laughs> it's okay. My show. If I were to point the blame at the various factors that made me want to get away from doing the zombie podcast and to come over to doing the more classic stuff, there are a number of things that happened in my life at the time. However, one of these deciding factors or contributing factors would have been my obsession with pre-Romero zombies. I love zombie movies by, by Romero. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I love Night of the Living Dead. Dawn of the Dead is the first time he used the word zombie in any of his movies. But up until that point, zombie was becoming that flesh-eating thing. There's something about the, all the way up through like Plague of the Zombies from Hammer, that I'm convinced Hammer would have made another zombie movie if Night of the Living Dead hadn't happened. But you know, up through Plague of the Zombies, I, I'm just on board with these films. I love them so much. And I think my wanting to help be a proponent for these zombie movies in a world in which, like you said, everybody thinks either the brains or Romero stuff really was a contributing factor to my wanting to do more classic stuff to begin with, to kind of support those. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense to me. And, and okay. I, I'm kind of with you on that. And it's not that you can't do a good zombies like Romero or like, you know, the early seasons of the walking dead or whatever anymore. It's just, I'm kind of tired of them. <laughs> And you have to actually right. do something kind of really interesting before it's like, okay, it's another zombie movie. Cause mm -hmm. we, we all know what those are like now. And we all know how they, how they work and the fact that they're quick and cheap to make basically. And people, and people enjoy them. So that's fine, but it's not, not the zombies I prefer. Anyway, Valley right, of the Zombies so, is old yeah, school. So bring it back to the, yeah, bring it back to the categories here, the ballot. Philip Ford does a really interesting job of balancing all these different elements in Valley of the Zombies that I think makes this movie interesting. Is it an important stepping stone the way like White Zombie is or Revolt of the Zombies? I don't know, but it's got some cool stuff in it. Right, which is why I need to watch and or rewatch it. It's on my list. There you go. Moving from there onto the, another category here. Yes. Uh, best movie. We have House of Horrors. We have La Belle et la Bête, Beauty and the Beast. And I'm sure someone's going to ding me for my French pronunciation at some point. And there's a reason why I have you do it and not me, man. <laughs> I think that's fairly good, even though, you know, it's been 45 years or more since I did any French. We have The Spiral Staircase, Strangler of the Swamp, Valley of the Zombies. And I look at these. And of the five, four of them are on my watch-slash-rewatch list. Because the only one that I remember really, really well is House of Horrors, because I've seen that relatively recently. And Spiral Staircase, we both confess we've never seen. So that's at the top of my rewatch list. But the others are on it, too. So uh, you got anything in particular to say about any of those? The ones that I've seen off this list, I really enjoy. I think Strangler of the Swap deserves 
excludes me. Strangler of the Swamp deserves a rewatch by a lot of people, by by anybody really. A Valley of the Zombies again. I've already talked about that. House of Horrors. Is this the first Rondo Hatton film with Universal? I can't remember. Oh, that's a good question. I always have. I think no. I think it's the second one, maybe because the first one is a Sherlock Holmes film. I think. See, I always mix them up. Yeah, there's a Sherlock Holmes and this one and the Brute Man. Those are the You're right. three. Right? The Pearl of Death is the 44 Sherlock Holmes film that he's in. Which is, I love those yeah. Sherlock Holmes films. You could do. You should. Some of them, I think, may be public domain. You should actually show them sometimes. Well, I love those you know, and films. I've talked very little about the Sherlock Holmes films on Monster Kid Radio. I know they're not traditional monster movies, but Evil and Anchor's in a couple of them. So, I mean, they've got the connections. Why not? Right. And the, the Pearl of Death has Rondo Hatton mm-hmm. in it. The, you know, and the Rondos are classic horror awards. Yep. So we've got one more category. All right, let's get to it. It's Best Monster. And in the Best Monster, we have Quetzalcoatl from The Flying Serpent. We have the Creeper House of Horrors, so we'd have gotten into this anyway yeah. at this point. Yeah. I love this one. Who oh, God <laughs> bless you for putting this next one on. We have Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm going to give credit where credit is due here. Jeff Owens is responsible for that. Listeners, he's a member of the Conservancy. He's the one that recommended Mr. Potter and try as hard as I wanted to. I couldn't get it out of my brain. I thought, you know what? That's perfect. That's what we got to do. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I I approve of this as a uh, as a character addition to this best monster thing because honestly, in in real life, the monsters you're likely to encounter, whether in life or politics or where, wherever, are actually likely to be the Mister Potters in the world, rather <laughs> rather than the Creeper, for instance. So anyway, Mr. Potter, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> and you can learn more about what Jeff's up to by going through SaveMonsters.com or check him out over at the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Yes, so thank you, So shout out to Jeff. We have The Beast, otherwise known as La Beta, in La Belle y la Beta, Beauty and the Beast. We have The Ferryman Douglas in Strangler of the Swamp. Some things we haven't talked about here. That's right. Uh, Quetzalcoatl from The Flying Serpent. The Flying Serpent is, for those of you that haven't seen it, basically a remake of The Devil Bat. Man, they were really hot on that, weren't they? The Devil Bat, Devil Bat's Daughter, and now this. They really were hot on that, but... They were milking it. It worked so well the first time that they tried it again with a Flying Serpent. Which is, honestly, my big regret about this film is that I've never seen a great print of it. Yeah, it's one of those movies that slipped into public domain, which means probably not a good transfer out there, but... I keep hoping something. I even have an original DVD from that was a, obviously a licensed DVD with a really? sucker on it, and yeah, and the print isn't just not that good. Uh, you know, it's back from the the old days when Suncoast was around. I think I got it in Suncoast. I was like, "What is this? I've never heard of this." And it's you know, I believe it's actually a licensed thing. And I is it a monogram picture? It's one of these houses that's kind of not existing right. anymore, and it's just uh, it's still. It's kind of dark. It's kind of hard to see the monster. You always want to see the monster, mm-hmm. right? It's worth seeing. And uh, the monster is kind of cool, and it's uh, not as big and imp- and imposing as you might expect. It's more devil bat size. And we have the creeper, mm-hmm. Rondo Hatton from House of Horrors. Mm-hmm. And we love Rondo. Rondo is, 
it, it's so weird living living today. When I was a kid, it was like, oh man, that's a guy that can play a monster without any makeup. Isn't that cool? And now I'm like, oh, that's a guy that could play a monster without any makeup. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. Yeah. It's like watching Freaks, right? Is Freaks difficult to watch because it's full of actual people from a freak show? Or is it good that Todd Browning was actually employing people to be themselves in his stuff? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Ron O'Hatton was terrific as a creeper every time he played mm-hmm. him. Loved it as a kid, and and I still love Ron, uh, Ron O'Hatton, and uh, I wish he'd lived longer and gotten to do more. So that's that's where I'll, I'll stop about that, and you can talk about it a little. I, that You pretty much covered it. Ron O'Hatton is one of these guys that I wish I would have had an opportunity to meet. Uh, he seems like a really interesting, fascinating guy. From what I understand, he was a softy. He was a gentle soul, and I would have loved to have had an opportunity to chat with him. Not that it would have ever happened, but he's right in there with the list of people that I would have loved to have had an opportunity to talk to. Not for the podcast, but just to say, hey, I love what you did. You know, and for those of you that don't know, and I don't think we mentioned it earlier, Rondo suffered from acromegaly. Right, yeah, you mentioned that, which yeah, he, um, is the same disease that was used to to turn the scientists into twisted, monstery-looking guys in Tarantula. Right. For those of you that have seen that classic film, so but Rondo didn't need any makeup, and it's interesting. Dave Stevens used him as one of the the heavies, used the kind of creeper character as a heavy in the Rocketeer. Mm-hmm in the comics and when they made the movie they actually did made up a guy and i don't remember who the actor was so that he looked like rondo hatton and at the time it came out i was like oh my god that's rondo hatton he's dead he's way dead isn't he yeah but our makeup arts had advanced sufficiently since the 1940s that you could make a guy look like rondo hatton as makeup which was kind of cool and again a little bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have Merry Christmas to you, too, in jail. <laughs> Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, uh, our favorite uh, evil banker, politician, whatever. Uh, what more can you say about Mr. Potter? It's a one of Lyle Barrymore's great yeah. roles. And I love this film and I haven't watched it in years and it's as fresh in my memory as the, probably the first time I've seen it because it's just that good. Well, it fell into public domain for a long time. So you couldn't get through a Christmas season without catching it three or four times on television. It's now no longer in public domain. And I still don't quite understand exactly how that happened. How they, yeah, how they reclaimed that. I'm not entirely I think it has to do with the music rights to some of the music in it, but I, I, I don't know. It's one of those things that I've never really researched. And sadly, it's not seen as much. I mean, it used to be a staple on public yeah. public broadcasting, at least. Which All was the time. Which was a wonderful thing to watch uh, at Christmas time, to watch yeah. this. Uh, and now NBC, I think, plays it once a year, right? And, and funnily enough, my understanding is that it was not very popular when it first came out. It's one of these movies that kind of just came out and... Eh. No, it kind of bombed, actually. It was yeah. one of these, you know, I, it may have made its money back, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, Frank Capra, it's a great director. It's good. It looks great. It's, uh, James Stewart's fantastic. Yeah, no, the, the whole cast, James Stewart, Donna Reed, every, everyone in it. It's a brilliant, brilliant film. And it just, it was one of those films that seemed to just come out at the wrong time, went over, you know, like a lead balloon, as they used to say, with a big thud, and then sat for years until... It's another one of those movies that I feel like we look at now and recognize the genius of, 
But I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons why it's so popular now is because it fell into the public domain, like Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. These movies are classics. They're genius filmmaking achievements. But, but would they have been seen by as many people if not for the fact that they were in public domain? Exactly. And I'm sure in this case that it is the fact that it, it was in the public domain for a while and that public broadcasting and UHF stations and all those other kind of wonderful things were playing it so people could see it. And it's one of those films when you you catch a little bit of it, you're like, well, what what's this? What's going on in this film? And it seems really interesting. Sure, and it's dark, oh, too. Oh, it gets I mean, very it's dark, and I'm sure that's why. I mean, you get alternate reality stuff, the guy's going to commit something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not even. Yeah, it's if you haven't bad. seen it, go but, go see this. It's yeah. it's ostensibly it's a Christmas movie, but it's really I don't think they even released it at Christmas time when it came out. But there's only one section of the movie is about Christmas. It kind of ends at Christmas time, but other than that, it's not. You know, it's and it's got angels and it's just it's kind of unexpected and wonderful. And it's, it's I'm really glad it, it was originally released in January, so just after Christmas, but still. But still, yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, we have. The Beast, La Bella e la Betta, Beauty and the Beast, one of the great makeups of all time. Uh, that's I can leave it there. You can see there are, if you see Paul Nashie's films, there's at least one of the Paul Nashie werewolf makeups that owes more than a little bit to the, to the Beast in sure. Beauty and the Beast. This is a great. Great makeup. It's you know, it's Jack Pierce worthy. It's it's fabulous. Ferryman Douglas from Strangler of the Swamp. He is the titular Strangler, and he looks awesome. Yeah. And he's played by. And here is Steve finally getting an opportunity to talk a little bit about a serial here during the rallies. He's played by Charles Middleton. Oh, really? He's played by Ming the Merciless. Now I'm not <laughs> sure I've seen this film again. You know, it's like you were talking about. It. I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that. And I was like, he's not overly recognizable. I mean, the voice is maybe a little bit in, in body shape and all that, but they do enough with him as a, as a monster type character that he's not immediately recognizable as anybody, really. It's fascinating. Right. Charles Middleton was on my my potential list for mm -hmm. 1936 before you were like, no, no, we don't do serials here. We're gonna yep. <laughs> we don't do serials around here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I love Charles Middleton. And he's he's also the, the arch-villain in uh, Daredevils of the Red Circle, yep. another serial, which is one of the great serials as well. So uh, the Flash Gordons, I saw them when I was a kid. They used to play Saturday mornings on TV. They'd play cartoons, and then there'd be a Flash Gordon serial, yep. maybe a Buck Rogers serial. Those were the days. It was a great way to learn about this kind of stuff. So cool that you push this up even higher on my rewatch. Watch or watch again. Now I'm – have I seen this? Have I not seen this? It's always interesting when I get to that point with movies, but – you know, I've got like 5,000 movies in my house, so <laughs> there's bound to be a little bit of that now and again. So I want to go to 56, and before we get into 1956, uh, I want to address something real quick, because this was something that I struggled with when we first created the rallies. Specifically, right. I struggled with it in, I believe, 1954, when we put Gojira on the list, because we knew that Godzilla wasn't released here in the States until two years later. So I created a poll and put it to you, the listeners, to decide, how do we handle these movies? Do we say the 1954 Gojira is it, or do we then reconsider it in 56, since it was released as Godzilla King of the Monsters here, with significant changes made to the film? And overwhelmingly, not everybody, but overwhelmingly, it was decided by you, the listeners, that 
if it has been deemed to have enough changes when it was re-released here in the States, then yes, it can make the ballot. And that's why you're going to see Godzilla King of the Monsters turn up at least twice on 1956's list. You'll probably also see this happen with Gamera when it's eligible for nominations. Maybe Rodan, we'll consider it at the time. But you will see that happen with a few of these movies moving forward now. Right, and and probably, you know, the Gigantus the Fire Monster or whatever you want to call it. Godzilla Raids Again. Godzilla Raids um, Again, yeah. Varan the Unbelievable will be eligible for that as well. Right, although so, uh, some of those are in the 60s, the power, so, so they're not yeah. as, you know. We're not, oh, that's a good point. We're not going to worry about all right, of them. Yeah. Quite not yet, yet anyway. but, but yeah, no, Rodan's got definitely has some changes in it and stuff. So, so just something to consider. But you know? In this one, it's really obvious that there are two different versions of this film. I think this is probably the most popular, the most well-known of the two, of, of all of them, really, right. to have two different versions of the you film. Know, and, and we could argue about this, but it's clearly the best, I think, of any, any time it, it was ever done where there's a, a movie from another country that has a... You know, no offense to Roger Corman, that has a U.S. edition made out with significant changes. Thank you for mentioning Corman. I was I was blanking. I was like, I know there's another guy in America that used to do that with Soviet films. Yeah, you're right. Yep. So you might see that happen with Soviet films if they become eligible for the rallies. I, and might not get to that point until the 60s, but still. Right, exactly. Godzilla, King of the Monsters is clearly a different film in many ways mm-hmm. than Gojira. Oh, definitely. And honestly, I love them both. They're a great double feature. Watch them both back to back. Really fascinating, especially with the commentary track that's out there by Criterion. Highly recommended. I think we've kind of played one of our cards here, though. Godzilla King of the Monsters is on the list for Best Actor for Raymond Burr. Yes, we have Raymond Burr for his role as Steve Martin. Right? No relation. And Godzilla <laughs> King of the Martin. Are you just going to say Monsters. that every time we have a Steve and or Sullivan variation now? <laughs> no, no. I was talking about no relation to Steve Martin, the comedian. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, are you related to that Steve? <laughs> no, I'm not related to either any of these Steves. You mean all you Steves don't know each other? No, no, there, there is a secret Steve club, which you are not eligible to join. The All, ah. the all Steve Squadron. Okay. <laughs> Best actor, 1956. We have John Agar from The, the Man. People. Yep, The Man. We have Raymond Burr, Godzilla King of the Monsters. We have Kevin McCarthy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We have Jeff Morrow. From The Creature Walks Among Us. And we have Leslie Nielsen from Forbidden Planet. And holy cats, this is a packed category. <laughs> so the 50s is interesting because you've got some traditional-ish monster movies, but then you get into kaiju. You get into flat-out sci-fi. Right. Man. Yep. Man, how do you mix these guys up? Agar and the Mole People. Now, John Agar, he's one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio. I mean, back in the day, our tagline included the phrase, Monster Kid Radio is where Agar still rules. I mean, Agar is one of the patron saints. So, yeah. And the Mole People's a really fun movie. We'll probably talk about it more later. So Mm -hmm. he's he's one of the scientists. And the other one is, what, Hugh Beaumont, I think? Yeah. So probably edged out by a little favoritism here. I could be wrong. (laughs) Well, there's that. But like I said, it wasn't just me that came up with this list by as evidenced by the fact that Kevin McCarthy is on here. And I admitted during the last stream, I've never seen this original invasion of the body snatchers. I was just going to bring that up and that kind of blew my mind. It still blows my mind. This is one of those 
you need to not watch Strangler from the Swamps again. You need to go watch Invasion of the Body. So Nature. here's my thing, and, and the reason for that, and I've been thinking a lot about this, there's a lot of classic sci-fi that I have not seen because when I got into this, when I embraced the monster kid in me, when I started filling the hole in my heart that I didn't realize I had with classic monster stuff, I went horror. I went Universal, Hammer, all this stuff. I didn't go sci-fi. So I rely on people like you, like Scott Morris, like a handful of these other big sci-fi fans to help guide me and, and, and introduce me to these movies. Just like I rely on people like Anthony Wendell, people like Kyle Young, people like you with the kaiju films. In some sense, I mean, this is kind of a weird thing to say, but those of us that are a little bit older – that grew up before there was digital media and before there was DVDs and before there was videotapes where you had to find this stuff Mm -hmm. on television. It was like a full-time occupation. You know, you'll hear people talk about going through the TV guide and marking the movies that had sci-fi horror or whatever elements like this in order that you could see them. Because if you didn't see it that night, that day, that time, You weren't going to see it again for maybe a year, maybe more, maybe ever. So those of us that grew up a little older didn't have all the stuff at our disposal. Couldn't say, well, I'm just going to watch Universal Classics right now. We had to say, well, what's on this week? Oh, look, something called Invasion of the Body Snatchers is on this week. Well, that sounds science. It says science fiction. So let's check it out. We couldn't just binge stuff. We had to kind of follow whatever was there. And as a result, I think we ended up seeing a really wide breadth of movies in a way that maybe maybe people don't see as much today. And certainly see stuff less that way since the demise of the video store, right? Because the video stores were, okay, it's all stuff I've seen except this one, right? And now the Hulu and, and Netflix and yeah. Amazon Prime and all this kind of stuff, it's like – you want you decide to follow one rabbit hole, you can follow it all the way through to the end, likely. And in the old days, you wanted to see the creature walks among us. You were stuck until it came back on, just totally stuck until it was either in a revival house or someone on TV decided to play it for you. So speaking of which, creature walks among us. What would Jeff Morrow because he's the villain? I know it's a monster movie, but Jeff Morrow is the monster in the film. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, he is. I mean, the, the creature is kind of the hero of the film, even though I don't remember if he's coming up as the the, uh, the monster at the end. But yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. It's a good role. And, and then Leslie Nielsen from Forbidden Planet. You know, it's funny. People know Leslie Nielsen now from all his comedy work that he started doing in the 80s. But he was a very serious actor before that. And this is one of his great roles. Look at his genre catalog, man. This Dark Intruder, another fantastic mm-hmm. film. Leslie Nielsen could pull it off he wasn't just the comedy guy he was a great comedy guy but that's not all he could do he could do this other great stuff too and yeah, i'm glad no. he did did very good very good straight straight up acting as we would say yep so okay so we, all right that's that category have we covered enough because we'll hit yeah. some of the others in the movie stuff that's right let's hit best actress five nominees here we have marla english from the she creature she is the hypnotist's assistant or victim depending upon what you want we have Anne francis from forbidden planet as the the only woman in the entire film pretty much (laughs) but they still give her something to do she still holds her own she's not just set dressing i feel like i mean she she looks great and i'm a dude so yeah but you know right she's also holding her own We'll, we'll probably talk about it a little we'll more get after it. I yeah. get through the, the list. We've got Beverly Garland, who is uh, Lee Van Cleef's wife, I believe, in 
It Conquered the World. We have Patty McCormick, who I assume is the bad seed in the bad seed. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's something else. And then we have Joan Taylor, who is the heroine in Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Right. So Marla English, she's the hypnotist assistant slash victim in The Sea Creature. Uh, Those of you that haven't seen this film, it's a really fun film. It's got a terrific monster. It's a Corman film, so it's like lean and mean and really well put together. And she's a woman who is uh, regressed into past lives, and that can go all the way back to the Stone Age and the pre-Stone Age, which is how we end up getting the she-creature, which the hypnotist regresses her and then sends the monster, her former past life version out to kill people, which is just kind of awesome. And it's, I think been stolen for a whole number of, <laughs> yeah. a whole number of movies since this is the first place that it, it came up. Uh, we have Anne Francis as Alta, who's the daughter of Dr. Morbius in forbidden planet. She's the, obviously the love interest. She's smart. She's sexy. She wears these kind of very strange and wonderful costumes and gets to boss Robbie the robot around, you know, and she's in the Rocky Horror Picture Show theme song. Anne Francis stars in Forbidden Planet, and here she is, playing Alta. I love this character. I love the role. Beverly Garland, I love her, and it conquered the world. I really do, because, you know, in some sense, that's the character that you would kind of think is the bad girl, and yet she's the assertive one. She's married to the one of the quote-unquote villains of the piece. I think that I respond really well to characters, to women characters in these films who have agency and have their own plans and motivations. And while a lot of her motivations, yes, are wrapped up in her man, it's it's less about I'm standing by my man and more about I'm going to help and save my man. And I really appreciated that as a character. And I think Beverly Garland really pulls that off. Right, yeah, she has agency. Anne Francis has agency sure. in Forbidden Planet too. But when I I looked at this is, list and I saw Beverly Garland on it, I was like, yeah, that was one of the things that sprang into my mind. And so she's a, she's a character that is, she is not just the romantic interest for someone else. Right. She has stuff she's doing. Right. Which is, aside from the, the killer child in the bad seat, I'm not sure you could entirely say about anyone else here. Patty McCormick, she is the girl in the bad scene, the young girl. And I've only seen this movie once and boy, that was almost enough. This movie messed me up the first time I saw it, which wasn't that long ago. A couple of years back, maybe is the first time I saw it. I, I caught it off TCM and put it on the DVR and then watched it much, much later than, oh boy, this one, she is just, oh, she's evil. Her, oh God. Yeah. Evil children played well are really, really hard to take. Yeah. This was not, you know, just a kid in a movie and, and you could have a bad kid in the movie, whatever, but she really got under my skin in this film and wow. She's terrific. Uh, boy, <laughs> I don't know what, I don't have any experience with this film outside of the one time I watched it, but I still can see her evil twisted little smile as she's playing. Oh boy. Ooh. Yep. Yeah, and this, you know, I hadn't, haven't gone look this up or anything. This is really kind of the the original Bad Child movie, I believe. It's you know, I know the, it's based on a stage play, but beyond that, I don't know much more about it. 
Right. But I don't think there were any children that were actually the villains in movies before this that I can really think of. That weren't, you know, that weren't just like the kind of jealous Scarlett O'Hara kind of, oh, she's so into whatever she wants that she's going to screw everyone else up. This is a child that is kind of Damien Omen, <laughs> evil child. Yeah. Scary. <laughs> I mean, there's no real like supernatural element, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And she was nominated for an Oscar for her yeah. role in this. There you go. Yeah. Moving on to the last one, we've got Joan Taylor from Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which is a great film. And I I recently did a little poll online asking people for movies where flying saucers actually there was flying saucer action, UFOs destroying things and discounting Mars attacks. And really, this is the only one. Which is weird. But maybe it's not so weird because Earth versus the Flying Saucers is so good. And Joan Taylor is pretty terrific as the scientist wife of the scientist in this. She's got uh, she's got some some uh, good moments, some chances to emote. She's got uh, emotional things that happen to her character that you can really mm-hmm. feel for. Her. She's she's just good. You know, not a lot more to say about that. All right, best director. I mentioned his name earlier. Got Roger Corman in here. For It Conquered the World, which is, you know, famous. Uh, we didn't mention this before, but it's also famous from Frank Zappa's cheapness song in which Frank Zappa claims that you can see the two-by-four pushing the monster out of the cave at the end of the film. And I don't think you really can. It's a wonderful monster, Blaisdell's monster. Uh, I love this film, and I am more disappointed than I can possibly express in some ways that it is not available on current media, that it is not out on DVD or Blu-ray or streaming and hasn't been out since VHS days. So there aren't any great prints of this available because of legal reasons. Yeah. We also have Terry O. Morse and Ishiro Honda for Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We have John Sherwood, for The Creature Walks Among Us. We have Don Siegel for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which Derek desperately needs to see. (laughs) We have Fred M. Wilcox for Forbidden Planet. I just waxed a little bit about Roger Corman earlier. I think he's a brilliant director, a brilliant producer. He's still with us. He's sharp as a tack. Last time I saw an interview with him, which was very recently, he still had it. and I think he's in his 90s now. He's in his 80s or 90s, and he's still making movies. Amazing. Uh, Terry O'Morris managed to somehow insert Raymond Burr and all these Americans into a kaiju film. <laughs> he gets props for that, and Ishiro Honda gets props for all the original Godzilla stuff, which is a, an amazing film. I prefer Gojira to Godzilla King of the Monsters, but having said that, I will watch King of the Monsters anytime it's on television. It's just, oh, King of the Monsters is on, and it's going to stay on until it's over now. (laughs) (laughs) John Sherwood, The Creature Walks Among Us, the least in many ways or in many people's minds of the creature film, but in a lot of ways, just as good as both the other creature movies and taking it in a direction no one probably expected. So props for that. I wish there had been a fourth sequel. But, uh, you know, maybe someone, someday someone will hire me to write one. 
Okay. There we go. No, I'd, I'd love to do a sequel that takes place right after Creature Walks Among Us or shortly thereafter. John Sherwood kind of had the thankless job of coming in and directing the third Creature film, the first of the franchise really to not be in 3D, to not have Jack Arnold at the helm. And he made the movie his own. He took it in a direction, along with the writers and the producers, that had not been explored yet in the Creature films. And I find the film fascinating on so many levels, the least of which is the Creature elements. I find the rest of it to be even more compelling than anything that happens with the Gill Man. Right. The human drama is probably stronger in this film than it is in any of the other films. Exactly. It's totally worth seeing for that for that reason. And the... Honestly, the three creature films are among the the best three monster movies ever. As a trilogy, it'd be hard to beat it. That's really, really, really good. Tell me about Don Siegel. I, I, I'm still stunned that you haven't seen this movie. Don Siegel's <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a masterpiece. Every element of it, from the actors to the cinematography to the sound to the, the score, is just terrific and don siegel was the guy that was riding herd on all that including you know the famous pods and all this other kind of stuff and if you've seen the other body snatcher movies and i i actually like every one i've seen and i think can think of three other ones this and the 78 i think it is one are the standouts of the four and this one you can see how people want to keep remaking this even though it's in black and white it's widescreen. There's really no reason to remake this film ever. Because <laughs> it's it's pretty much perfect. Even though, you know, there's, uh, if you look into the history of it, they did maybe change the ending somewhat. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting bit of film history, but I think it's perfect as it stands, and it would have been perfect the other way, too. So there you go. But that's me on Don Siegel. It's a great film, and he deserves a lot of the credit, I'm sure. Fred M. Wilcox. I don't know what else this guy did. Do you, Derek? So we're talking about the director of Forbidden Planet. What I'll say is the Forbidden Planet is a classic, and it's a aside from lingering male-female relationships that we wouldn't portray this way now. Aside from that seeming very dated, it's a brilliant film and is as new and interesting now as it was when it was first made, even though there are elements of it that have been lifted and used in other things. I mean, it's proto Star Trek, right? That's the problem with a lot of great movies and a lot of great literature is that people get exposed to someone else doing an homage to it or whatever without seeing it. You know, it would be like reading Dr. Cushing's chamber of horrors and then watching Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and saying, Oh, that Sullivan guy did this better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which well, maybe, is the but... number one complaint that I have about to go complete. Boy, this is not going to be like my music rant, but this is <laughs> the number one complaint that I have about the Mandalorian yeah. is that people watch that and don't realize how much it's lifted from spaghetti Westerns. Yes. Everyone involved with it would tell you, did you watch the, you know, not to digress too far into the Mandalorian. No, I've you... only watched it. I haven't watched it. Back. I don't have Disney plus. So, there's a great making of series that goes with oh, it. I know, like I know. In which I they can, talk about all this stuff and yeah. they talk about all their influences and where they're taking these things from. And it's like, yeah, awesome. People yeah. need to be a little more aware of, of the roots of these things. Yeah, the, it's, cinema, uh, the cinema literate, the cinema literate, is that, I don't know, how, whatever it is. But yeah, I mean. Cinema and, and, literacy. There you go. There you go. That's what and, I'm talking about. And I know 
I can say, look at the spaghetti westerns. That's where they took it all from. But spaghetti westerns took all that from samurai movies. So yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I know, yeah, we go you know to it kind of goes back and back movies. and back and back. Yeah, and then the samurai movies were influenced by. John Ford Westerns. Right. <laughs> John- it, it all goes, it's all cyclical, man, or, or connected, you know? Right. So, but it's worth knowing where all this stuff came from. And, and Forbidden Planet is one of the, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, for that matter, are two of those things that you see mm-hmm. their stuff from them over and over and over again. Yep. It's funny, I'm, I'm part of a, a writer's group called The Illiterates, which has a lot of really interesting people in it. And we haven't, haven't uh, met here in the Midwest for a long time, but they still meet, or they were before COVID on the West Coast. And at one point, we had kind of a humorous page up in which we paid tribute to people that would have been illiterates if they had only been alive now, right? And sometimes they were just funny, but one of the ones that I remember well was written by Rob King, and it was about Tolkien. It was like, someone put up Tolkien for, for the illiterates, but then we looked at his stuff, and it was just one cliche after another. Haven't we seen this all before in fantasy? And, and then would name stuff that happened after Tolkien, right? And it was a very funny parody of of people that don't understand the, whether the roots of where things come from and and take the newer stuff as the original when it's actually a reflection of what came before. And it's well, okay to like the newer stuff and 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 not absolutely. I mean, it's okay. We're not saying that you're not a true fan of the Mandalorian if you don't recognize that it came from this, 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 and this. It's fine. Right. Absolutely. But if you want to enjoy it even more. Perhaps you can dig a little bit more and find this stuff. Right. It's it's impossible to look at Forbidden Planet and not say, that could very well be a Star Trek episode. Or that could I, very well be a Shakespeare play. <laughs> right. Well, clearly that's where it came from. I mean, a lot of it is from that. But what I'm getting at is that I cannot not believe that Roddenberry didn't see this. Right. The, the he way would have the- had to have. Yeah. The way that the people conduct themselves, the, the whole yeah. kind of space, the spacefaring exploration thing. That's very clearly one of the ancestors of Star Trek. Anyway. But to get back to what you were saying, the director, Fred Wilcox, uh, this was his second to last film. Uh, he His very first feature film was a Lassie movie. Don't really know much about him uh, other than this is perhaps the only real genre film that he did. Uh, he did a couple Lassie films, like I said. And then the final film in his career is something called I Passed for White, uh, which sounds fascinating. I haven't seen it. Hmm. But it's about a, a, a white girl who marries somebody and is afraid to tell her new husband that she's actually half black. It sounds like it could be interesting. Could be. It could be. It know. doesn't look like it's exploitive. It looks like it could be. I right. mean, James Franciscus is in it, and he's cool. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I'll watch it someday. You can never tell. You can never tell what those I'll things. They may, they may the be really enlightening, or they may be really cliche, or they may be cringeworthy. But always worth finding out. It's, you know... There are a lot of people that are like, why did you waste your time an hour and a half with movie XYZ? And you're like, oh, I enjoyed it. You know, it's like there are, aside from one Bruce Lee exploitation movie that I've forgotten the name of, there's almost no films that I've seen. Well, there's an uh, I Love Trouble too. I hate it. There are very few films I've seen that I felt like I completely wasted my time watching. Very, very few. And I've, again, I probably have 5,000 movies in the house, and I've probably seen that many, even though I haven't seen every one that I have in my collection. All right. Best movie. Movies that we've already talked about, but we need to mention them. So we have Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Harry Harryhausen classic. We have Forbidden Planet, Walter Pigeon, classic, 
We have Godzilla, King of the Monsters, a classic. We have It Conquered the World, remade at least once and maybe more, a minor classic. <laughs> and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, a classic film remade at least three times. Honest to God, I look at all this, this whole list, and I think these are all classic films. I love all of these films. How in heaven's name am I going to choose one of these? Over all the others. I'm not going to vote for Invasion of the Body Snatchers because I've never seen it. But, what, no. <laughs> but you're going to watch it before you get to vote, man. I, oh, I am. I am. So I am. break your arm if you don't, if you vote without oh, watching it. Well, <laughs> listeners, you just heard him threaten me with bodily violence. There is a good chance I may <laughs> vote for that one over the, all the other ones. Really? Yes. <laughs> wow. It's a, it's a great film. So they're all great films. What can I say? You know, uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, amazing Harry Housen special effects, the best flying saucer movie ever. Easily. Uh, we have Forbidden Planet, which does have a flying saucer, so maybe, but it doesn't attack anything. So that uh, okay. rules that out. A classic sci-fi, amazing sets, amazing special effects. Beautiful, beautiful movie. Godzilla, King of the right. Monsters, a recut of a classic movie that is in its own right a classic. It Conquered right. the World has a great Paul Blaisdell monster, which maybe is going to be on our list later. Maybe not, though. The monster affectionately known as Beulah otherwise known as Frank Zappa's upside-down ice cream cone. I love this monster. It's a terrific monster. Paul Blaisdell made terrific monsters. and uh, Yes, he did. And the story in this is really cool, too. The science is a yeah. little rubbery, of course, but that's okay. Uh, finally, Derek hasn't seen it, but Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I hear it's okay. Yeah, I've heard it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so that is that. And, of course, you can add in your best movie or any other best ones that you want. And we've got only one more category for the rallies in this year, 2020. What do we got? We got best monster. Okay. So we have the monsters from the id or the id monster from Forbidden Planet, which is a really cool animated beast on screen uh, created by some animators on loan from Disney, from what I understand. The animated id monster scared the willies out of me when I was a kid. And that was on a tiny old TV where you couldn't really see it in all its technicolor glory. And on your TV nowadays or on a big screen, which you should do if you can see it. Trippin' Planet is amazing. <laughs> uh, we have, of course, the big G, Godzilla from Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I mean, it's Godzilla. And it is Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters is probably the best. Well, Gojira and Godzilla King of the Monsters, the best portrayal of the big G from this era, hands down. Just a phenomenal monster, iconic. Yeah, what more can you say, Eiji Godzilla. Godzilla is one of my two favorite monsters. The creature is the other one. I'm going to kind of lobby not that everyone not just vote Godzilla reflexively here because Godzilla has a way of kind of stomping off with all the awards because it's Godzilla. At least look at and think about the other monsters in this category. And it may be you'd like Godzilla better than the, any of the others, but the other ones are really worthy too. So what's what's next on the, the monster list we got, Derek? Some cheapo hack film. <laughs> no, it's the pod people from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We also have the classic long-fingered, bumpy-headed mole people from the mole 
people. They are just an amazing monster design from Universal. Universal, you know, they were getting away from the Frankensteins and the Wolfmans and all that, but they were still able to put some amazing looking monsters on screen. Millicent Patrick, of course, responsible for the Gilman, but the mole people look really cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's out of the the Bud Westmore shop too. So right. God, God knows whether yeah, who really worked on it? <laughs> who really worked on it? I don't think Millicent I don't think did. She did either. Yeah, the two that she's but, normally associated with are the Gill Man and the Metal Mutant. Right. Which honestly, I can see some re- resemblance uh, yeah. artistically between those two. Sure. Yeah, we're going from Bud Westmore to uh, Paul Blaisdell. The she creature. I love the look of this thing. I know it's a lower budget version of the Gill Man. I know it's a Paul Blaisdell thing. And a lot of the Paul Blaisdell suits sometimes didn't work exactly as they should have. But I love the look of the she creature. I think it's awesome. It's not really just an imitation of the Gill Man. It has elements of the Gill Man, but I, the head of the she creature is a, is a, a sculpt of beauty. It is uh, mm-hmm. a terrific thing. It looked great on the issues of famous monsters where it was on the cover or the interiors it's a a really cool thing it deserved maybe more of a life than it had and i always thought it was interesting we had the creature and the she creature but then as a kid they were like oh they're not related <laughs> so that is the uh list the, the ballot for this year's rally awards like i said i'll be announced stay, stay tuned in the next few minutes i'll announce where you can find the ballot how you can fill it out, and when you need to have it done by. And then Steve and I will tabulate the results, or I'll tabulate the results, and I will spring the winners on you and Steve at the same time. Yep. Now, Steve, I gave you the option, and I've done this off and on over the years. I've given you the option every decade. If there's one thing you'd like to change out or make sure it gets added in, you see any categories here you want me to change? Oh, man, this is really, you know, there were things that didn't make the cut in 56 was just a oh man i mean you know i'm looking at this and there's like we've got things we didn't mention the x the unknown the black sleep the seventh seal i came real close to putting death on here i really did there there were a couple of people that were pushing for it but right and i I was probably one of them (laughs) uh rich chamberlain was too you know i mean i had i think six we had uh, the original Rodan was out this year, I think, too, maybe. We'd have to check that, right? Was Rodan that year? Holy crap. Rodan was 56. And uh-huh. here's the thing. When I was putting this ballot together, not only was I looking at everybody's suggestions, but I was also checking several resources online, Wikipedia, the Internet Movie Database, and so on, to provide me a list of all the sci-fi, fantasy, and horror movies that were released in various decades. Wikipedia is really good about this. They typically have a way for you to sort by year. Apparently, Rodan is not listed on Wikipedia as a monster, sci-fi, or fantasy film, or horror film. So it did not come up on any of the lists, and I totally blanked on it. Steve, do we need to swap somebody out for Rodan? I would swap out the director... King of the Monsters director for Ishiro Honda for Rodan. Really? Okay. I would. Right. And I right. I would even, even though this is probably, now that I've told people, consider other things than Godzilla, I'd either put in Rodan or I'd, I'd take out Godzilla. I'd either make it a six category or, or I'd uh, remove the Godzilla 
as a duplicate and put Rodan back in that. You might even consider doing that in the movie category. And that only occurred to me because I've I've got a long list here and I highlighted some of the ones I really liked. I mean, we didn't we could have put Robbie the robot in the monster category, but Rodan is the one. Seventh Seal as a movie, is, is it a horror movie? Is it a non-horror movie? I see it as a black comedy. I know some people think it's just a drama. I mean, it's got his fantastical elements, obviously. The it dude's does. playing chess with death. Right, you know, and people are going to go, isn't that like Bill and Ted? Yes, it's like Bill and Ted, because Bill and Ted got it from the Seventh Seal. So that's, you know, that's a tough one. But I, I think I would definitely consider adding Rodan and maybe taking out Gojira. Uh, just because it is a for, repeat. But for then best we, director or best film? I would honestly, I would do them. I would do them both, and maybe best monster. Consider Ooh. adding Rodan to those three categories: best monster, best movie, and best director. Okay, so I was saying one change per decade, but you know what? We'll just do three changes in one decade instead. <laughs> we'll add Rodan to this ballot. I even mentioned Rodan earlier. And- I know. I know. We both did. Oh, okay, yeah. Duh, um, uh, <laughs> so the, the other two was, decades aren't nearly as full of stuff as '56 was. Kind of the thick of this, and I, I'm really afraid that we're going to get to the point now where we're coming to the end of these decades, and the nominations are going to get thin again. Yeah, pretty sure it was '52 where you and I were just yeah. clawing our eyes out trying to find things. I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. So. Uh... Yeah, but yeah, okay, so Rodan, actually, uh, when it appears on the ballot, it will be listed as, <laughs> here, here's Derek about to try to speak some Japanese, you ready? <laughs> <laughs> Sora no Daikaju Redon. Hey, pretty good. That was uh, not embarrassing. Thank you. That's pretty much the way I would have said it, too. <laughs> so that's how it'll appear on the ballot. Uh, when it was released here in the States in 57, it was just called Rodan. Right, because Radon is a word in English, and Rodan is not. Yeah. So I'll take a look at it uh, when 57 rolls around to see if there's enough changes to warrant it being on the ballot again. But it came out in December of 56 in Japan as Radon. So there we go. There we go. You know, it's funny. Every year you ask, and most years I don't have anything. <laughs> no, I'm glad you caught it, though, because I'm sure listeners, at least one of you, Steve Turek, would have mentioned Steve Turek, that one of these kaiju films, Steve Turek, wasn't on the list. Yep. So a, Another member of the All Steve Squad. <laughs> 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 and I love Rodan. I don't know what I was thinking. Oh, uh, I do, too. I, I love it a lot, too. And it's like we're just rolling along here, and yep. suddenly I'm looking at my list and seeing what I put highlights on. And under Best Film, I had like eight films, I think. And Best Monster, I've got like, I you know. And that's just the ones I've highlighted. The Best Monster category on my my personal list has more than a dozen things on it. It's probably 15 or even 20. Yeah. That could have made it. So, because, you know, not only do we have Radon, we have the Mega Neurons from Radon as some possible monster. We've got, you know, all sorts of other death from the Seventh Seal. So, and as much as it pains me not to put Bergman in as a possible best director. <laughs> right. I, I think uh, for Monster Kids, Rodan is probably more important. Radon, Rodan. All right. Well, that is it, Steve. Thanks again for being part of the uh, Rally Awards, and we'll have you back on when it's time to start talking winners. Awesome. I look forward to it. It's going to be great fun. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I have been taking notes through the entire episode, so I have a few quick comments to make. So, first of all, regarding uh, Dr. Tong's segment on Scooby-Doo. Man, I love me some Scooby-Doo. I think we've made it pretty clear over the past few weeks here on the show that I love me some Scooby-Doo. And it is going to be something that I do more with next year, but I'll take any Scooby-Doo content people want to send me in the meantime. I do agree with Dr. Tong, with Mark, that Scooby Natural is amazing. That episode was so cool. I've been a longtime Supernatural fan off and on over the years anyway, and that was really one of my favorite Supernatural episodes. It's just so much fun. He mentioned the, uh, the Lego that they do as well, and... Yeah, I don't think that set's actually in production anymore. I think it's been retired, but there was some pretty cool Scooby-Doo sets for Lego. I'm an AFOL, an adult fan of Lego, and I came back into the hobby, like my dark age is what they call it. My dark age ended uh, after the Scooby-Doo sets had been retired, so I didn't have an opportunity to get my hands on those, and now because they have been retired, to buy them on the secondhand market, even if they've not been retired, they're on their way out, they're pretty pricey. So if anybody can get their hands on some cheap Scooby-Doo Lego sets. I mean, I've got some minifigs. I just need some things to put the minifigs in, you know? The mystery machine would be dope, and the lighthouse is so cool. Anyway, yeah, Scooby-Doo, so cool. I really appreciate you bringing it up, man. Just, that's how you get on the show. You want to be on the show? Talk about Scooby-Doo at some point. <laughs> like I said, I was keeping notes. Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland it was very fitting that he did something game show related. I'm going to leave that dangling there just kind of as a tease. But I have to disagree. Weird Woman is the best of the Inner Sanctum films. It's not boring, man. It's not tepid or whatever it is that Famous Monster said. That's that's the one right there. And yeah, there should have been some Harryhausen in there. I'm really surprised there wasn't, considering it was, you know, Ackerman putting it together. And finally, Mark, Mark Matsky over at the Monster Study Group congratulations. Mark just recently posted uh, a picture of him with a big old grin. <laughs> and I, I understand why, because he's holding a book and that book had some material in there that he contributed, you know, writer to the book. And that is just so neat. It's an incredible feeling. The first time you get your book, your hands on a book in which you've appeared is just something that I mean, it's going to stick with you forever. I mean, the first time I picked up a copy of my book when I unboxed uh, my Mark Temple books, for example, uh, that was that was very special. So, man, I'm so glad you got to have that feeling. I hope that book becomes available uh, to a wider audience and as opposed to just the crowdfunding folks that help support it. I didn't get a chance to help with the crowdfundings, and I'd love to read it. I'd love to get my hands on it. I've been checking out so much of your Small Town monster stuff. I'd love to read some Small Town monster stuff from you too, Mark. So congratulations. So cool. Uh, oh, you know what? I mentioned the Mark Temple books. So when we combine with Gary Kahn uh, on the 10th for the stream, I will be doing another reading from my book there, from Monster Hunter for Hire, Supernatural Solutions, The Mark Temple Case Files, Volume 1 book. I will be reading the story, Are You My Mummy? So stay tuned for more information about that. That's about it for this episode of the show. I appreciate everybody being here. I mentioned earlier that we are on Facebook. You can follow us on Facebook. We have a page and a group. I think the group's a little bit more active. I use the page for announcements, but I don't really make a lot of announcements because I save most of that for here on the podcast itself or on our Twitter. We're also on Twitter as well. 
Of course, this information is available over on our website at monsterkidradio.net, which you're want to go, which you're going to want to go to anyway, because that's where we update you with what's coming up next on the show. I can tell you, I've got a couple of episodes in the can right now. I don't know which one I'm going to play next week. So make sure you're paying attention to monsterkidradio.net or at least the Facebook group, because I'll be announcing there what you can expect next week on the show. What I will do on monsterkidradio.net is post the link to the ballot for the rally awards. Yes, I know I didn't give you one here, and that's because the ballot is not done. I'm using a Google form document, and I've got most of the material in there, but it is so late and or so early in the morning, it's just not ready. I need to uh, do another pass on the editing of it because, oh boy, it was filled with typos. But I will make the ballot available no later than next week's episode so stay tuned for that as well there will be a link to the band that allowed us to play their music the kashik beach party song which comes from the album meanwhile in mallorca you can find them at hattori hanzo surf experience.bandcamp.com i know that's a lot of words follow the link in the show notes and finally to go back to something that dr tongue mentioned the 31 days of dracula so here's the deal, gang. I had every intention of launching a 31 Days of Dracula YouTube series. Well, and it was going to go all through October. Well, here it is October 1st, and I don't have the first episode up, but I hope to have it up by the end of October 1st Pacific time. So it'll be available on YouTube. It'll be available not on the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel, but the secondary Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel. which you can find by doing a search for electronics service unit number 16, or just follow the link in the show notes. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel because you'll be notified. You'll get updates about when episode one of 31 days of Dracula goes live. Okay, that's it. I'm going to wrap this up, do a quick edit, put this out and get some sleep until next week. Remember that monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio, LLC, all original content by monster kid radio, Oh, I don't remember the thing. Man, I don't even remember how it goes. I've been saying this for seven years. All original content by Monty Kid Radio is licensed. Man, I can't even... <laughs> One more time, ladies and gentlemen. All original content of Monty Kid Radio by Monty Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Kashyyyk Beach Party. That is copyright 2016. The, Hat the Hattori Hanzo Surf Experience. My name is Derek Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when I've got a little bit more sleep in me. <laughs> Man, ciao. Ciao.